Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, loving Jesus by loving people. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. My name is Wolf Jansen, and one of the hats I wear here is I'm on the church mission team. And it's my privilege to say a few more words about our guest speaker, Eric Rose. Um, Eric is the missionary that our church has probably, of the four that we sponsor, he has been on our list of sponsored missionaries for the longest time, probably more than 30 years. And uh, Eric started working with uh, Campus Crusade originally in Ontario and then into Quebec. I remember him thinking he needed to go to a third world country where the gospel wasn't preached, so he went to Quebec. And uh, anyway, um, um, at this point, uh, he once told me, and I don't think this about him, but he told me he's feeling kind of old to be working among students. So he's transitioning to the humanitarian side of Power to Change, which is called GAIN. And GAIN works in a lot of different countries around the world, uh, helping with water wells and things like that, and also doing church plants. And so, uh, Eric, why don't you come, come on up? Eric is working on the church planting side of Power to Change Gain. So let me just pray over you a little bit. Father, we just thank you for Eric, for the influence that he has been on so many people, and uh, for the good work that he has headed up. And uh, Father, we give you the glory as he moves on to gain, and we just ask that you would bless his work and the ministry that you are doing in these places. In the name of Jesus, amen. I'm wired. Well, good morning. Happy Thanksgiving. It's, uh, it's a privilege to be here. I love coming back here. This is well, this is Julia's home. I, Julia, I should introduce you. Julia, could you stand? <laughs> this is Julia has uh, been on been on your um, missions uh, support for longer than I have. Julia and I uh, married here uh, a long time ago, <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> and so Julia is uh, Julia Whitfield. For those of you who know the Whitfield Group, um, and uh, anyways, I'm I'm uh, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I love coming back here. Um, we love visiting. It's Thanksgiving weekend, which is always the best weekend to come back. And, and we have truly so much to be thankful for. And I actually said in the first service, and I thought maybe I won't say it again because I actually choked up a little bit, which, which really surprised me because I have no feelings usually. And, um, and I, I want to say one of the reasons we, we got here late Friday night because we wanted to be here on Saturday because Saturday was uh, Kay Whitfield's birthday. And so... Uh, <laughs> uh, Kay is a young mom. Julia gets mad when I say, okay, mom, is a young, uh, 92 years old, Can I, am I allowed to say that? <laughs> and, um, and, you know, people have, people make mother-in-law jokes, and uh, how bad their mother-in-laws are, and stuff like that, and I have to confess that I, I have never heard uh, Kay say anything negative about me, in my, maybe she says it when I'm not there, <laughs> but I'll have to say that in uh, our 28 years of marriage, she has been the best mother-in-law. And so I, I appreciate you, Mom, and I wanted to say that this morning. Very kind, uh, very creative, very caring. Uh, she phones us all the time to see how we're doing when we should be phoning her to see how she's doing. And so uh, we really appreciate her, and we celebrated that yesterday. 
and, uh, and that was great. Um, the plan this morning is to, because Julie and I are changing our roles in ministry a little bit, the plan this morning is to talk a little bit about where we've come from in ministry, um, because it's Mission Sunday, to talk a little bit about where we're personally going in ministry, and then to share a little bit from the words. So that's, that's kind of where I want to go. Um, driving down here in the, the car, I was reminiscing a little bit about um, 31 years of ministry. And the reason I was thinking about 31 years of ministry is 31 years ago, uh, in the fall, 31 years ago, a group of leaders from this church, well, actually it was a church business meeting, got together, and they decided that they wanted to invest in student ministry. And so they, uh, there was two uh, young missionaries from this church, Julia Whitfield and uh, Bob Schmidt. And, uh, and they wanted to go into to work with the university students. And so 31 years ago, this church made a commitment that they would, that they would pray for them, that they would support them, that they'd care about them and encourage them and love them and help them to, uh, to serve God in ministry. And, uh, and you have faithfully done that for 31 years. I realize Bob is a teacher. At least last time I heard from Bob, he was teaching. But uh, for 31 years, you have faithfully encouraged, supported, uh, loved, prayed, prayed for student ministry. And we're so thankful for that. And we're thankful for the, for the faithfulness of this church. And so as I was uh, reminiscing, I thought, of, I thought of four things that were kind of markers in my time in ministry in the last 30 years. And so the first one, I, I didn't share these with Julia, so I think you'll agree, though, Julia. The first one was uh, in 1991, we were given the opportunity to lead a group of students to the Ukraine. Uh, it, had just, it had been the Soviet Union. It had become the Ukraine again. And we were given a chance to lead a group of university students there. And... Um, it was it was uh, it was a one it was an amazing trip. We uh, we would go on the university campus and people would just come up to us to talk to us, and they wanted to know about our culture, but they also really wanted to know about God, and they wanted to know about Jesus Christ. And we just spent all our time just talking to people, and mostly people were coming to us to hear. And it was an amazing time. And and we went. To, there, there was two years we sent sent student groups there, and over that time God built a ministry, and particularly in the in the we were in the city of Donetsk and the city of Nepopetrovsk. And I, I mentioned that partly because it's connected with this church also, because when Julie and I were about to go, we, were, um, we realized that we had been so busy on campus, and it was May 1st, and we had no money to go. <laughs> and someone said, well, just tell the church in Leamington. And so we did. And, uh, and uh, I know that some of you have some connections with uh, the Ukraine and that part of the world, and uh, we were amazed at how quickly God just, just brought in all the needs that we have. And, uh, and even though we never went back again after 1991, um, God built ministries there. And even in the city of Nepopetrovsk, he took the student ministry that was planted by, again, just a bunch of 20-year-old, 21-year-old students and a couple of 20-some-year-old 20 staff, and he built it into a Bible college, and they sent pastors out from there, and they sent missionaries out from there, and God did amazing things. And so 20, if you think 25 years later, all of a sudden that part of the world's at war, and the city of Donetsk is destroyed. And, uh, and you just think, God, you are so faithful to build something there and give it 25 years to grow. And so that's one of the highlights of our time. I think another highlight for me was a, was a uh, couple of trips to Cuba. We were asked to come to Cuba, and I don't think I've spoken publicly in this before, but I think it's okay. <laughs> it's now. <laughs> um, and we were asked to come by churches, to come and work with the churches and build a student ministry. And so we went in there, and we would go, um, we only stayed about 10 days each time. But we would go, and at night we would kind of go into the churches, and we'd meet with people in the basement of the churches, and we would teach them how to do student ministry. And the first time we went there, there was only three or four people in, uh, who came out, and that's because that's, that's all the Christians they knew, and most of them were high school students. Um, three or four people came out, and we taught them what we knew about student ministry. The second time we went down, there was about, about 15 students that, um, that came out. And the, uh, the third time we went down there, um, we were t well, we were going to go down, and they told us we weren't allowed back in the country. 
don't know why, but, <laughs> but I phoned the pastor and I told him we couldn't come and he said, you know, it doesn't matter, we don't need you. He said, there's more than 200 students on the university campuses now and we're, we're doing great without you. And, uh, and I miss the beaches down there. <laughs> no, um, but uh, it was amazing um, what God did through just, uh, again, just a group of students. And, uh, and so uh, those are things that bring back memories of how God has worked through this ministry over these 31 years that you've been involved. Uh, another national highlight for me, Julie and I were, well, it's where we met, well, where we started dating, I guess, uh, at, at Queen's University. There was no ministry there. We moved there in 1989 to start the ministry at Queen's University. And over the course of about five or six years, that ministry grew from, from no students involved to almost 200 students involved. And uh, from that group, we, God sent, um, we saw amazing things. God sent pastors to all these young people who were coming, growing up to, to do certain career paths that God changed our heart. And we sent pastors all over the place. We sent someone that Julie, one of the girls she's working with, she led someone to Christ and they got married and they went to to uh, Japan to to uh, to plant churches. Uh, one of the guys that I was working with, he was um, from this area, uh, Windsor, and he ended up, well, he's in a closed North African country right now, ministering, and, and God just sent people all over the place. And, and Julie and I were just trying to survive. We had two young kids and trying to do ministry, and God just did amazing things through the work there. And then probably the last one is probably the most difficult was when we moved to Quebec in 1996. And that was hard, and when we were contemplating the move, we, uh, I think um, Wilf mentioned it, that we, 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 we thought we'd go back to the Ukraine because we thought people over there will be, loved, be glad to see us and people in Quebec won't want to meet us. But God led us to Quebec, and, uh, and we were uncertain, and, we, and the church here prayed for us. And uh, we got lots of phone calls, and we got visits, and, we got, and, and the church supported us. And, and, and God enabled us in Quebec to build a ministry where today there's, we have minis campus, uh, ministries on almost every major campus in, in Quebec. And God, especially during the time of those years in Quebec City, where we saw, we saw people come to Christ, and, and, and other people would come to us, and they'd say, how are you seeing young Quebecois come to Christ? And we'd say, we just tell them, and they're just responding. And we weren't seeing hundreds, but we were seeing people come to Christ. At one point, uh, about five or six years after we'd been there, we realized that four or five of the youth groups in the city were being led by people that had actually come to Christ in our first couple of years there, which was, which was amazing. Um, one of the students had the idea that they should do something on chastity in Quebec. And I'm like, no, you don't want to do that. That's a bad idea. And they, they insisted we should do that. And so we, did, so we did this whole thing on the university campus where people put their names in the paper and said that you know, because, because of their relationship with God that they were going to save sex till marriage, which is just bizarre in Quebec, right? And, um, but we did that. And, uh, and the interesting thing with that, even though I didn't want to do it, the interesting thing with that was that uh, we actually had people from the radio stations and the uh, Radio Canada get in touch with us, and they did a program on us that went out all over Quebec, and our students were able to share their testimonies and why they, they, that Jesus is more important to them than casual sex. And, uh, and so these are things that we, we didn't plan, we didn't program them in. These are just things that God did. Um, in these last 31 years, Thousands of people who probably who may have walked away from the Lord have found a Christian group on campus And that's enabled them to survive their university experience and come out as Christians the same way they went in um, Thousands of people have heard the gospel hundreds of people have come to Christ and God has sent missionaries all over the world I say that uh, not to brag about us uh, To glorify God and also to brag about you a little bit because I think what we don't realize sometimes is we 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 Put the money in the offering plate, or we have a we have a campaign, and um, we we just kind of the money just goes. But we don't realize that 
that the gifts we give are, are, are changing the world. They're making a difference. They're making a difference in Leamington at the bridge. They're making a difference in, in Austria with Mel and Dave, and in Laos and Thailand with San, Sandy. Uh, they're making a difference, is that? <laughs> oh, with Patrick. Uh, um, Derek Peranto. That's right, Derek Peranto in, in Northern Canada. And these, these gifts are making a difference. And so when you give, it, 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 you know, there's, there's, there's a fruit, there's a harvest. And the sad thing is we get to see it as the missionary, but a lot of times you, you guys don't get to see it. So from, our, from Julie and I to you guys, um, thank you for, for, for 31 years of investment. And, uh, and we're, we're, we're so thankful. Uh, looking ahead, where are we going? Um, well, <laughs> a few years ago, when I was a much younger person, about five years ago, we began to say, you know, maybe it's time to make a change. And we began to look to the Lord, what would that be and where would we go? And then we, I just kind of felt convicted my time on the university campus wasn't done, that, that there was... Um, uh, so I, I, stayed, I went back to work with the younger staff in, in Quebec. I kind of removed myself from leadership, worked with the younger staff, and also began to work with the leaders at the McGill University again. And, uh, but I, I kind of felt at that time it was going to be a five-year commitment, then it was going to kind of come to an end. And so this is kind of a new stage for us, a new step of faith. Julia is a little bitter this morning, or a little bitter this year, because even though it's a new step of faith, we're leaving her behind. Uh, for a year, <laughs> so she made some commitments to uh, some of the women that she works with at McGill University that she wants to finish, so this year she will still be at McGill University working, and she'll be working with GAIN after this year. For myself, I, I've transferred from Power to Change students to Power to Change uh, GAIN, so I'll try and explain what that is, because people get confused, and I don't do a very good job of explaining it. So, so uh, Power to Change is, is an umbrella organization that has a lot of different ministries underneath it. Uh, they have the student ministry, which is what I've been a part of. They have athletes in action, which have been part of this church, I think, at different points. They have family ministry. They have, um, oh my goodness, um, people are going to get mad at me. Christian Embassy. Um, this isn't being recorded. I'll forget all these names. Christian Embassy, which, work with, which works with ambassadors and MPs. Um, Leader Impact Group, which Ian Whitfield worked with for a number of years. And, and another one of the groups is, is GAIN, Global Aid Network. And Global Aid Network is the humanitarian division of power to change. And, uh, and what they're committed to is basically demonstrating the love of God through word and deed. And so I'll be working with GAIN, but my specific role is to be working with the, um, the evangelistic or the, the, the gospel, um, sharing the gospel side of GAIN. And so um, uh, part of part of gain, and that's where it gets confusing, is a group called the Jesus Film Church Planting Strategy. And so my role, and, and what they do is they help work with the humanitarian work to basically grow the church and build churches in these different countries. So my role is twofold. One is to be responsible for this church planting strategy group, and uh, the work. And in some places, we we work where where there is no humanitarian work. We just work because the doors are wide open, like they are right now in Sierra Leone and, and Liberia. And in some places, we um, we uh, uh, work through the humanitarian uh, work, like in, in Togo and Benin, where we use water wells to work. So my role is to run this group of people who are responsible for um, the, the church planting on the back end of the humanitarian work, but also just church planting in general. And uh, the, we're going to have a short video clip which will kind of describe the, the strategy. Uh, if it's not really clear, I'll, I'll tell you what it is beforehand. But basically, we, like for instance, in Sierra Leone, we're just working church planting. We're not working with the humanitarian side because it's really wide open right now. And so what we do in Sierra Leone is um, we'll find a church that wants to, uh, to uh, plant other churches. We'll train eight, uh, eight to ten of their leaders to, be, to, become, uh, to do follow-up. We'll go into an area to plant a church. And then basically that, uh, that church will... Uh, so what we do is we take those eight to ten leaders to do a church plant with us. We show the Jesus film. 
and then the um, and then the uh, these uh, eight to ten leaders from the mother church will will follow up the new people, put them in small groups, and after ten weeks of follow up, they'll bring them together to form a church. And then we'll go back and train those people, as well as the mother church's denomination will start to train those people. And after a year of, if that church is still in existence, then we consider that church planted and we leave that with the mother church. And that's the kind of the work we do in areas where we're not doing the mandatory work, where we're just doing the church planting work. So I have a short video that kind of talks about that, and that, that might make it a little more clear. With a strong history of over 35 years of the Jesus film, thousands of people were exposed to the gospel, resulting in many lives being impacted for eternity. Today, the Jesus film is now being used as a tool in a comprehensive church planting strategy. This strategy brings the message of God's love through film showings, discipling new believers, training new leaders, and planting churches. The key component discipleship. Because of this uh, Jesus Film Church planting strategy, more than 100 uh, villages now they got the, the, the opportunity to hear about Jesus Christ. The gospel uh, has been expanded uh, through these 100 more than uh, uh, villages. So uh, uh, the church planting strategy is very effective. Due to this emphasis on discipleship, Hundreds of individuals embark on a journey from a simple acknowledgement of the gospel message to a committed follower of Jesus Christ. Many have their roots deep in the truth of God's word. Today, the Jesus Film Church Planning Strategy is in Liberia, Mexico, Sierra Leone, Ethiopia, Benin, Togo, Tanzania, and Paraguay. In the countries of Benin, Tanzania, and Togo, the Jesus Film Church Planning Strategy partners with Global Aid Network's Water for Life initiative, resulting in a more holistic approach to ministry. Thousands experience both spiritual and physical health. In other countries such as Paraguay, the Jesus Film Church Planning Strategy also partners with Global Aid Network's Relief and Development Project. Designed for sustainability and multiplication, the Jesus Film Church Planning Strategy Team identifies a local church who has a vision for the spiritual needs of those living in the surrounding villages. They then show the film and challenge them to plant a church in a new location. Six to ten individuals from that local church form an action group and are trained to follow up and disciple new believers. Once the film is shown in a new location, home groups are then formed with the individuals that accept Christ. After eight weeks of discipleship training, the home groups will then join into one group, forming a new church plan, and are then challenged to reproduce themselves in at least six months. The Jesus Film Church Planning Strategy team then moves to another location to repeat this cycle. Multiplication is a guaranteed outcome for this church planting and discipleship strategy bearing much fruit for the gospel. The strategy has a great impact because many souls were saved. Many people got to touch and then they came to Christ. And as a result, many churches were built in the area. Now the churches are growing very fast in the area. The spiritual impact of one church plant means that roughly 10 leaders are trained, 
421 villagers see the Jesus film, 50 villagers indicate decisions, and 26 villagers learn the basics of their new faith. Will you partner with us? Will you support one or more church plants, providing eternal hope and lasting change to these communities? So I hope that kind of uh, gives some clarity. Um, I should mention, and kind of as a type of confession, when I first talked to our leadership and they asked me to take this role, I was really reluctant. I was, um, uh, the Jesus film was something for me that we had used like 35 years ago, and we'd used it as a coverage strategy where we just showed it to everyone, every place. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to be, you know, doing that, that's been done. And the, the difference is what they explained to me is that uh, the Jesus film is just a small tool in what is a church planting strategy. And as I began to look at it, I realized that, that, uh, that they are successfully planting churches uh, in places where there are no churches and there never have been in churches. And so in Sierra Leone, where this strategy is in place, um, in the last six years, we've planted uh, almost 500 churches. Now, they're not massive churches. They're churches of 30 to 45 people, but they're in places where there's never been churches before. And so it's, a, it's just powerful the way that God is using this to, to build his church around the world. And so that got me excited. But I asked him, I said, so really? How many churches have you really planted? <laughs> I'm a little bit skeptical. And, uh, and they explained to me that they actually have planted as many churches as they've said because what they do is they go back a year later and they verify every church. And somehow that seems to be important that we need to, to do this work as part of the process of, of, of the church planting. And so we really are seeing God do a tremendous work in places like Liberia and Sierra Leone. The other part of what I do is, so that's the direct church planting. The other part is working through the humanitarian stuff. And I think I may have shared about that before, but I just shared one story a while ago how, how um, um, when J Jeremy, uh, my son, and I went to work with them one summer a few years ago, took a bunch of students. We were in this one village, and the village had no, no Christian church at all, no Christians. Uh, they weren't interested. They were interested in, in voodoo. They were interested in witchcraft, but they were interested in water. And we couldn't get in the village, but when we brought water, um, we spent two days after we drilled the well making a platform and hanging out with the villagers and getting to know people. And then when they opened the well, which is so exciting in these villages when they actually open a well and they can actually have real water to drink instead of stuff that just makes them sick all the time. When they opened the well, there was a big celebration, and we showed the film that night. And so many people responded that the leader of the village, who hadn't come to the film, said, uh, he basically said to me, he said, we are a nothing village in a nothing country of no importance, and yet you brought us water. If you want to build a church here, you can build a church here. And he gave us land to build a church. And so when I preached that Sunday, we had about 75 people in the church. And I know they weren't all believers at that point, but that church has continued to prosper and grow. And so that's the other part, is just working on the back end of the, of the humanitarian work and how that opens doors. So this is a new direction for us. So, per, so we ask you again to, to pray for us, to be part of this, to, um, to um, uh, just your, your encouragement means so much, your prayers, your gifts, everything that you do for Julie and I is... is it's just very meaningful to us, and we really value you and value this church. I also, um, so th this has become a big part of my life, the, uh, the um, humanitarian stuff, and I, I feel a little nervous even talking about it because it's very new, 
And so I feel there's people probably here who know a lot more about working in humanitarian circles than I do. But I've been, every, I've been reading lots of stuff on it. When I read the scriptures, I kind of, I go there and I go, okay, <laughs> you know, what does this have to say about what I'm doing? And so I also want to thought I'd take a couple minutes to share a couple of stories um, from the life of Jesus about you that talk about this whole, this whole process of how, we, how Jesus ministered to people and why he ministered to people and what was his approach to ministering to people. And so I want to, if you would like to turn to uh, Mark uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. We're just going to read through this slowly. And maybe I'll, I'll make a few comments as I go through. So um, Mark 2, 1 to 12, it says, When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And so the, the, just one of the things I find interesting out of this is that it says Jesus was at home. And I, I'm not sure what that means. Um, he, he, maybe this is where, I think it means this is where he stayed when he's in Capernaum. And so uh, it was his, his home at that time, and so the people, or else he was home in Capernaum, but I, th I think it was his home. And, um, and uh, even though he probably came home for rest, the place was packed, and it was packed with people, and so he was ministering to them from the word. Okay, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now I find this, this interesting because it says they came, it, it's, it's just so, it, it says so little. Some people came and brought this paralytic. Four, four guys, four men actually came, or at least four of them carried him. Luke tells us a little more. He says they carried him on a stretcher. So that's additional information, which isn't too helpful. But I always kind of want to know the backstory here. I want to know, did, did, uh, did the paralytic ask to come? Did he say to his friends, you know, take me to, to Jesus? Or did his friends just grab him and say, you're going to Jesus because he can heal you. And if anyone can heal you, it's going to be him. And so we don't know the backstory at all, but I, these highly motivated guys brought their I think, I assume their friend, on a stretcher to see Jesus. And being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Now this is interesting because um, <laughs> I, the, the question I want to ask when I read verse 4 there, if you want to go back a slide, is um, why, couldn't they, why couldn't they get to, to Jesus? Like, what's the deal with that? Like, you got a paralytic here. Just move aside and, and let him get to Jesus. And uh, they didn't. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe they didn't because it was kind of, it's kind of like it was a cue. Maybe it was a cue of all these people that wanted to be, that need to be healed. And so you don't just get to jump the cue, right? Kind of like at Costco. I mean, you cut in, people get angry, right? And so you, you don't just don't jump the cue. And so I thought, well, maybe that's it. So there's the, that's the reason they wouldn't let him in. But Luke gives us a bit more information on this too. He actually says when he tells this story, he says the, the, room, the building was filled with Pharisees, scribes, and teachers of law. And so basically what he's saying is the room was packed by people who wanted to have a theological, spiritual discussion with Jesus. Now that still doesn't say why they didn't actually make room for him, but I guess it means that they didn't see the physical healing as part of this discussion with Jesus. Or maybe they just find that, that the physical healing becomes messy, or maybe they just didn't care. But for whatever reason, they didn't make room for him to come to Jesus. And uh, so what his guys, his guys do is they go up on the roof, and they make a hole and let Jesus down. Now, I saw lots of kids' videos because I had four kids, and we watched them endlessly, and they make a nice little hole in the roof, and he comes down, or they lower him down. But if your picture is that they're going to take their drill guns and take the screws out and carefully put the plywood aside and lower him down, uh, it's not really the picture that you should have in your mind. You should, uh, if you've worked on an old house, Julie and I have lived in old houses too much, and plaster walls and plaster ceilings, and if you do anything, everything falls on you. 
and, uh, and with everything, all the dirt that's accumulated up there over the years too. And so you want to think of this being that kind of a building where maybe there's boards, there's dirt, the dirt might be covered with grass, it might be covered with something else. And so when it says they dug a hole, they literally dug a hole in the ceiling. And so you have to picture as there's these fairly, all these astute people who want to have a theological discussion in the room down below. And all of a sudden they're standing there and you think, pretty soon things are falling on them. And things are falling on Jesus and it's actually his home. <laughs> and, and things are falling on these guys as they're trying to have this theological discussion. And eventually, after a lot of things fall, they lower this guy down through the roof. And so, you, so it's just to move away from that kind of sterile vision you might have of this clean kind of situation, you have this situation where there's just a mess. And probably some people are fairly upset. They lower this guy down. And verse 5, And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, that's a really interesting thing to say. And it's interesting for a couple reasons. It doesn't tell what the four men's reaction to that was. Um, I don't know. But, and this in my family is called biblical speculation or, or BS, can I say that? <laughs> um, but but um, I think they would have said, dude, are you, are you serious? We brought this guy to be healed. We, we dug a hole in the roof. We've made a mess. Everyone hates us. And, and we brought him to be healed. W what's going on here? And uh, the... Um, We'll get to the, the reactions of the Pharisees and scribes afterwards, but um, I don't, I, I'm not sure exactly what the reaction is, but I think that's the reaction. In fact, I think the reaction, it'd be interesting to know the reaction of the paralytic. I don't know what his reaction was. I, I think it might have been different. And I'll tell you the reason I think it might have been different is because I have some experience with this. Uh, not being paralytic, but being, having my sins forgiven. And as a 20-year-old, I discovered one day that God wanted to forgive my sins, and he actually... He did, and I felt clean for the first time in my life, and it changed my life. So I think the paralytic may have understood what Jesus was doing and what Jesus was talking about, but I don't think anyone else there understood. And so you have one group who are, who are really annoyed <laughs> that they did all that work, and he's like, oh, your sins are forgiven. Like, no, 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 he can't walk. Come on, don't forgive the sins. Do the whole job. Do the rest. And, uh, and then you got the, you, you've got the other group. But everyone in the room, I think everyone in the room knew what the greatest need for that person was. Everyone knew that he needed to be physically healed. At least everyone thought that was his greatest need. But actually, Jesus met his greatest need. His greatest need was not physical healing. His greatest need was actually to be spiritually reconnected to God, to be reconciled, to become in friendship, relationship with God again. That was his greatest need. And so every, though everyone else knew, or thought they knew what his need was, only Jesus understood that his greatest need was that he would be healed spiritually. Because, that, because you can heal someone physically, but if their inner life isn't transformed, there's no real transformation of the person. And so this is, I, I think that's part of what Jesus is talking about through here. He could, have, he could have healed them physically and then healed them spiritually, but instead, he says, your sins are forgiven, and then he waits for the reaction. Because he's trying to teach us maybe that that's the most important thing. Again, it doesn't say that I'm just... I always got to look at the pastor, whether he's waving me off the stage at this point. <laughs> okay. Um, so what's the reaction of the rest? But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak to, that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So they're upset because they're saying, this is ridiculous. He's taking on a role that actually belongs to God. He, he's claiming one of God's, what God, only God can do, and saying, I'm doing it. And so they're, they're, they're rightfully upset about this. Um, 
Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. I'm... Um, I, I think it's interesting to see these two groups together. I think that um, I think that uh, I, I, and I think they, they they bring a challenge to our church as it is right now. Julie and I have been you know, working with students for thirty years. I'd say in the last fifteen years, we've we've noticed a significant change in in uh, in both the Christians and the non-Christian students we work with. There is a there is a, a overwhelming desire and cry. Um, whether it's whether it's sincere at the bottom of their hearts, I don't know, but there's an overwhelming cry for social justice right now among young people. Uh, equality, um, food and water for everyone, food and water being a human right. There's just a list of things, in the, and people are saying that, 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 that there's an injustice, and, you know, and, and, this, and, and this needs to be dealt with. And, and uh, we're going to, I assume that you're seeing that in this church here. I, I mean, I'm, I think the bridge is even a response to that at some level. And, this, and you're probably hearing this in the church. And you know what? It's actually a good thing. It's a good thing the church is challenged with this, and um, and so the so the interesting thing a little bit with this is that um, what we want to say is yeah these things are important, but remember that of the thing that's the most important, the thing that's the most important is there is that that there's no transformation without spiritual transformation. If if food and water was enough, if food and water and clothing and, e and rights and equal rights were enough, then Canada would be the happiest place in the world. Everyone here would just be walking on sunshine. Um, but we're not, and because it's not enough. And there has to be the spiritual transformation to bring people truly into connection with God. So the first thing we need to say is this grows within our church because this is coming, and we don't want to push it out. We don't want to say this is a bad thing because it's a good thing, but we want to say there's a place for this, and the place is to walk alongside people physically, but also to bring the spiritual, to bring the spiritual truth, to bring the spiritual transformation. And then there's another challenge here, and the, the Pharisees and the scribes define it one way, which isn't, which doesn't work for us, but they're kind of saying, prove you are who you claim to be. Um, I think there's a level where the world is saying to the church, prove you are who you claim to be. And it's a different proof, because we're not claiming to be God, <laughs> which Jesus is claiming here. But we're actually claiming to care. And so the world is saying, you know, prove it. Prove you actually care. And so, you know, we talk about the, the cry out for social justice. The other thing that's a a big cry in our, among our, our students and stuff these days is authenticity. That people would actually, would actually do what they say they're going to do and be who they say they are. And so this is a challenge to our church. This is a challenge to our church that we, that we not be afraid of this movement, but that we embrace this movement, but remind people that, the, that there's no real transformation apart from Jesus Christ, but we still need to love and care for the world. And so that's, I, I don't have the answers <laughs> for any of this stuff. But these are just things that, uh, that it's, been, it's been fun for me to be able to look at the scriptures in a new way as I change my focus a different direction a little bit and just to see these things in scriptures. Another passage uh, I think I'll take the time to read, which is, is kind, of, kind of similar and kind of, uh, it's interesting in the same way, is the story of uh, Jairus and his daughter. You, you guys know the story. It's in um, Luke chapter 8, verses 41 and on. I'll just read it. It's very short, so you don't need to turn there uh, unless you want to. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was official of the synagogue, and he fell at Jesus' feet and began to entreat him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about twelve years old, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitude were pressing about him. 
And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. And immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus said, Who is the one who touched me? And while they were denying it, Peter said, Master, there's people everywhere pressing upon you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I felt the power had gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now that's... um, that, that, that's, I think that's just an interesting passage, which I, I guess just simply reinforced what I've, what I've kind of been saying already, is that um, in this passage, uh, Jesus actually feel, physically heals someone. And, uh, and he's on his way to do um, other important work. He's on his way to, to heal a, a dying child, or a dead child in this case. And, um, and yet he stops. And he stops because... Because physical is not enough. It's not enough to just bring the physical. He wants to have a connection with this woman. This woman needs to connect with Jesus. She needs to have, a, she needs to have some kind of a, a connection, a relationship, a response to him. And so Jesus stops everything and takes the time to find this woman and have a, a spiritual um, connection with her. And again, just, just a reminder that, that, uh, that, that this is kind of what we're called to. And we can become, like the Pharisees, we can become so, so caught up with... Um, just the theological truths that we don't actually see the needs of the world outside the door trying to get in. Or we can become so busy with, um, with trying to solve the problems of the world that we forget that Jesus is actually the only one who can make the, the final difference. And then we realize that we're called to both. We're called to, to minister to people spiritually. We're called to minister to people physically. Uh, now I know that's not new for you, but uh, it's kind of what the Lord has been showing me through some of my time in the Word lately, so I'm happy to share that with you this morning. Um, I mentioned uh, um, part of the work we do is, uh, I do is, is with the Jesus Film directly where we're working places where without the humanitarian work, um, but in other places like Benin, we have, uh, the only way we're, we're able to get into these places is through the humanitarian work, and even if we couldn't, it's such a privilege to bring things like water to people. It's, it's, uh, it's an incredible thing to see how it changes people's lives and it changes whole villages. So I have a last video here I'll show to you and then the, the worship team can come up at the end of it. But uh, it, just, it just talks about, uh, about it shows um, our work in Benin. I should mention to you it's in French, sorry, it's in Fawn, translated into French with English subtitles. So I don't know how that helps you. Sorry, Mom, I don't know if you can see it. <laughs> um, but uh, um, thank you for your prayers. Thank you for, the, for 31 years of, of faithfulness to, 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 to us, but many more years of faithfulness to missions and many years to come. And, Pray that you guys would continue to just um, support us and encourage us, and, and we really appreciate this church. Thank you. Maybe I could just add one thing. Um, just so you know, it's not me going to dig the wells and stuff. Uh, <laughs> it's all people, nationals from those countries, and, uh, and people understand the culture, and we're not just sending a bunch of uh, white North Americans over there to do the work. And my role is to help organize it and to train, but. Uh, it's all people from those countries and communities, and so they understand the culture, and, and it's, uh, it's uh, Africans helping Africans in most cases. Please stand away. Thank you again, Eric, for just meeting with us this morning and sharing your heart. I'm excited to see what God will do through you guys in this ministry. Um, I just like that example that we read in Mark of just the paralytic man being raised down from the roof wanting healing and I think it's a good reminder for us to not just want the healing 
but to want the person that's doing the healing, to want the God that is the healer, who has the authority to heal, who has the authority to forgive us of our sins. Um, so as we leave this place, let's desire him. Uh, I'm just going to invite our prayer team to come forward. If you are wanting prayer, um, I encourage you to come forward after the service. Let us pray for you. If you are not desiring that this morning, I just ask that you visit out in the foyer or in the cafe. Um, so let's wrap up our morning with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. God, that even when we are not faithful, when we are not worthy, God, that you are there, that you are ready to meet us where we're at. Lord, I thank you for having the authority to be the healer, God. That your name, is so much more than just a name, God, but it is above all others, that it is powerful, it is wonderful, and it is beautiful, Lord. So we praise you and we thank you for this morning, and God, I just ask that as we leave this place, that our faith would not stay within these four walls, Lord, but it would go out into the community. You would give us a desire to not only just want you, Lord, but to share your word, to share your gospel with everyone, God, because it is so good, and because of it, Lord, we are thankful and we are grateful. So we give you this morning, and we ask that you be with us. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Have a good Sunday, everyone.